Happy Monday, folks. This episode is brought to you by Happy High Achiever. Have you recently hit difficult workplace hurdles despite a resume that seems enviable from the outside? It's hard to be happy in life when we're unhappy in our careers. And those of us who constantly compete with ourselves to be better, whose pride and very identities are inextricably tied to achieving, feel it particularly bad when work stops going well. Who are we if we're failing to live up to our expectations we've set for ourselves? If this scenario resonates with you, Happy High Achiever is here to help. Courtney Bryan, HHA's founder, started the company to provide support and resources for high-achieving employees who hit significant professional obstacles, often for the first time. Interested? Check out happyhighachiever.com slash upzones to learn more. Join the newsletter and access a special Friends of the Pod rate on coaching packages. Our other sponsor is Horizon Books. You know Horizon Books. Check them out in Capitol Hill and mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount today. Hey, Naboo, what are you filing today? I uh, don't know the actual title of it, but it translates to the Polish Soldier's Pocket Prayer Book dated 1918. Well, if you're going to go to war for Poland, that's a must-have. Our sponsors are Horizon Books and Happy High Achiever. And this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. No, it's not this summer's blockbuster action movie. It's just the closure of a highway. That's right. We are four days from the period of maximum constraint, folks. That's right. January 11th. We've been talking about it for years. It's come up on this show. Things are going to get tougher before they get better. On January 11th of this week, this month, this year, uh, Washington State Department of Transportation will begin the permanent closure of the Alaskan Way Viaduct. And over the next few years, they'll be doing a ton of different construction in the region and in the city to make transportation safer and, and better. And we, we all know the story about the viaduct. We know that there were some controversies there. We know that there was a lot of debate and dispute about what the best approach was to take in the stand-up of the project and, and where it went in the long term. But uh, here we are. This is what's happening. There's 60 construction cranes currently dotting the skyline right now in downtown, and we are about to experience the biggest one. Now, you know, the city has stood up a bunch of resources for folks. They've created a, a, a geofence for non-hailing on 3rd Avenue. That's interesting. It'll keep people off 3rd Avenue there because hailing at Lyfts and Ubers can really, actually really create more traffic than it mitigates. But, you know, at this point, we're just going to have to get creative. And uh, I'm starting with myself. I'm going to carpool at least twice a week with my buddy Andrew. We've made a decision. We both work in Factoria and that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to stay home a third day. So three of the five work days, there will not be that second car on the road from me. And I, uh, it's one small thing, but it's the, it's what I could do. And I think if, if everybody just gets creative around getting out of a car when, if possible, or getting into someone else's car, if possible, I think we can really manage this. And who knows, maybe we can bend the arc of uh, behavior in the city. I, I, I would love to continue to carpool even after PMAX is over. Yeah. Email me, Twitter me, let me know what you guys are planning to do for period of maximum constraint. Our, uh, our guest today, 
Boating Zhang or Bo Zhang is a genuine Renaissance lady. She really just keeps very busy in the city um, and in the community. She does work in real estate strategy for the city, although she did want me to let everyone know she came on and spoke for herself, not the city, and that's fair. Uh, she founded this, co-founded this really great group called the Bramble Project and has also been um, really active in an art on civic dialogue program called Between Americans that she talks a little bit about on the show. We got right into it, man. Uh, we had a great conversation. We talked about uh, some of her time spent abroad and how she thinks that there's something missing in the community aspect of the American dream that might be actually leading to some of the real disputes that we're having now politically, socially, culturally, and some of the poverty wouldn't hit quite so hard if we had community. And it's funny because that really just builds on the exact point made by, uh, if you remember Kirsten last week, we actually interviewed them both the same day, about a week ago, and it was really funny to ha have these themes just floating around uh, in the two conversations. Uh, two fabulous ladies that are doing amazing stuff. Bozang, great conversation. that person because she I love that you know it's funny because I also um, a friend of mine and I she was she and I, she she wanted to do a podcast together and it was a very similar idea <laughs> um, and just humanizing folks yeah who are out there yeah. and in particular going into trauma like like what are the ways in which trauma and hardship mm. affect who we are and what we do yeah and what are the relationships that get us into what we do right like it feels like we often end up like kind of atomizing each other right like we're like what here's this person and what's this like this is my bank teller right that's who that person is like they're my bank teller they give me money yeah, yeah, yeah. i give them money right like, exactly yeah. right 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 and like, like and what are all the influences is that that, that have yeah. yeah made that person that person yeah 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 um so trauma trauma yeah because you seem so like I, and i do want to talk about the bramble project because i sure. love the bramble project oh. um you seem, um, for everyone who's listening, we're in a bookstore and it's business hours and this, the listeners know, but you may not know Bo. So I'm here with Bo Zhang. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for and, having me. Oop, that's fine. You can leave that. We're, uh, we're doing Sunday. Normally we I record on Thursdays, off hours. So people may come in. This is part of the nature of the, the fun here at Up Sounds. Um, I love that. I love walking into the store and like being like, who's that talking in the background? Yeah, yeah. There's like, <laughs> oh, someone's buying a book. That's yeah. like, yeah, right. This is not NPR. Yeah. So let's talk about trauma a little bit. So, you, you know, the Bramble Project is kind of, you know, I would call it a positive or an optimistic. Maybe that's right. I don't know. You, yeah. you can comment there. But how does trauma kind of play its role if that's, as you say, so, so central to, oh, to what you're doing? That's such a lovely question. <laughs> I would say that the trauma that there, I mean, there's so many relevant traumas I can point to, but I would say one could be just having had parents who couldn't get along. Mm. And so you grew up like a divorce household kind of situation. They might as well be. Oh, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's even worse. Right. Right. My, my, my mom and my dad did not stay together. And, and my mom always said like, just get divorced. If this is ever you just get divorced. I remember a moment. Yeah. I remember a moment when they were fighting so, um, like not even viciously, but just loudly. Yeah. Um, and I was crying. It was like in second grade. And I remember my dad saw me crying. He was like, don't worry, we're not going to get divorced. Cause they were talking about, you know, like they yeah. were like screaming, like we're going to get divorced. And I was just crying cause they were 
It was the energy. It was, it was, it was hot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, we're sitting there being like, that's not, no, no, do it. <laughs> maybe, get, maybe get divorced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I definitely um, spent a lot of time just wanting them to get along and just kind of being torn with this, like, I love this person. I love this person. They hate each other. Yeah. Actually, I kind of love and hate both of them too. <laughs> you know? And that's playing into that. it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So like that mediation instinct. It was just me. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. even worse, I think. Because then you don't have like a... You know, a sibling is like a built-in therapist kind right? of you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're the best siblings, so I hear. <laughs> yeah. They're not always. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I definitely think there's long been like a mediating oh, instinct and this particular question that ended up becoming the Bramble Project really, it showed up for me about 13 years ago. I was in rural Japan mm-hmm. and that was actually... What brought you there? Actually, I was running away from a job. <laughs> was, this this is actually a great example of conflict aversion. I was um, I had just gone through a quarter life crisis. My undergraduate degree was in computer science and electrical engineering. Okay, and so soft stuff, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, like yeah, like super like rational. That was that was my like late teens, young adulthood mm-hmm. was just like hyper like scientific and engineering brain. Yeah. Like, well, again, not to pull you too far out yeah. of Japan. I want to stay in Japan, yeah. but do you see, is, is there a connection between a family life that's kind of hard to control and then wanting to go oh, into these like, yeah. Cause electrical engineering, computer science, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, yeah. and, and both of them are scientists as well. And oh, so it was okay. just like a very like, and my dad just was hyper rational, like very atheistic to the point of being anti-religion, uh-huh. anti any, you know, like I went to, uh, so my first year in the U.S., I went to kindergarten, and I came back, and I was like, guys, there's this American guy named Santa Claus, and, and he gives everybody presents, and my dad was like, no, that's not real. Yeah. Actually, he's German, and he died 400 years ago, and yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, no, just like really against um, anything that felt uh, non-concrete. So that was definitely the world I grew up in, and, and so that was kind of part of this quarter life crisis I was going through was, right. was realizing like, wow, I really, um, respond a lot to social context and mm-hmm. want, you know, like I ended up in this career that's essentially the opposite of people. I was working, I was, I thought I was going into robotics, you know? Right. And so, um, I ended up part of this quarter life crisis was working in this company that I just couldn't find myself fitting into. It was, I was doing a terrible job. I didn't know how to quit it. <laughs> Yeah, conflict aversion. And then I ended up going on vacation to this 300 year old thatch roof farmhouse that was looking for volunteers to cut thatch. And And this is like rural Japan. Rural Japan. Like by Kyoto area or? Uh, It was in Shikoku. Okay. Is it the north? Uh, It's, it's the, it's this bow tie shaped island. It's the fourth largest island. Um, so it's near, it's kind of near Kyoto and Osaka, but like across Across the the inland sea. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So it was there. And they were going to shutter their doors because the on-site manager was moving to Thailand. And basically, I was like, I can stick around yeah. and manage this thing. And I just completely ghosted the employer. Like, I really, like, I really did not know. So they're still cutting your paycheck. Stopped answering phone calls. Uh-huh, stopped, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Terrible, embarrassing moment in my life. But... Um, did you ever... Did they ever... Was there like a letter? Was there an email? I mean, 
so by then I had actually gotten into like a contract contract contracting situation. I mean, like I'm trying like to like shorten the story. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, I was a contractor more than I was actually. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like I just stopped doing well, but like, I was I was definitely mid contract, and there was a thing that I was supposed to finish, and I like basically <laughs> yeah. so I like I saw it playing out, and I was like, I'm gonna be stuck here forever doing this thing <laughs> yeah. that I want to do. So. <laughs> so just stopped answering the phone calls. How um, how some of our best leaders found their next roles. <laughs> Stop fucking Ghosting. doing the thing that you were doing before. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, I got it. Totally. Well, so so I ended up there for two years. And in, the, in the farm. In, yep. Yep. And in, in this farmhouse. In Shikoku. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Shikoku. And there, I think, there's a, a more subtle societal trauma that kind of probably shapes what ended up feeling so connected for me there, which is just actually being embedded in community again and being mm-hmm. embedded in a sense of mutual reliance and like, all the irritations that go with that uh, of not being fully independent and all the beauty that comes with yeah. having people actually track what you're doing and stop by right. unannounced right. and tell you when you're planting the potatoes wrong. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, but help you plant the potatoes. Right. right. Too. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's why married people live longer. It's like, I'm not some traditionalist, but the, the, it's a facts are the facts. You right. Know? When right. you have at least that one other person. You're seen. You're seen. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Totally. Yeah. So, so it was there. I just got really interested in the cohesiveness of community, the interaction between community and place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, in particular, that village, like a lot of rural Japanese towns, was on this economic life support from the government. It was basically for the purpose of maintaining jobs. There were public works projects. They weren't necessary. It was basically mm-hmm. building new bridges to replace old ones, building right. new tunnels to replace old tunnels. But it was just a ton of like concrete, like trucking in and out of the valley every day mm-hmm. for the purpose of jobs. Yeah. And we did it here, right in the 30s. Right. Yeah. Dig a ditch, fill it back right. up. Yep, yep. Yep. But yeah. keep people employed. Somebody's yeah. got to do it. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And there, there it was particularly fascinating because it felt so contradictory to what the spirit of the place was, which was like, you know, this was one of the most. It, it's known as one of the most secluded areas of Japan. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like 800 years ago, this samurai family fled Kyoto and settled there and, and they built these vine bridges. So it's like meant, it's, it's known for seclusion. It's, it's, it's known for these mists that just swirl in and out of the valley. Wow. Yeah. And that's where it gets its tourism from while there's, all this construction going on, yeah, like, you yeah. know, building, kind of building, retaining walls and giant parking garages and mm. that sort of thing. And so it was just fascinating to me that there was this dichotomy between this economic development need and this job need and this kind of like sort of sense of place and identity of the place. Yeah. And so that was what I thought of as a dichotomy then. And in a way, it was like also a mediating tendency, right? Like surely there's a way <laughs> for this construction industry to somehow be able to mesh more with this like sort of more community driven. Yeah. yeah. There always tourism. is. I mean, there yeah. almost always is. Yeah. One more thing, but then, but then there's also often like a lot of compromise and so on and so forth. That's yeah. also involved. So, so it's kind of like, I mean, so I think that, that initial question, that sense of like, is there a paradox here between economic development and sense of identity? I didn't think of it as a paradox then, but figuring out how to resolve that and I was really interested in kind of community participation as a way of resolving that so okay so if we determine that we need a hydroelectric dam can community participation make that better right in some way right and so that's what got me here studying going to grad school yeah and we we have an interesting system here in the US where we try to engage the community around 
So you'll hear me, you know, I, I don't know how much you listen and I, you don't need to answer that question. <laughs> but, <laughs> that uh, a couple of but, um, you, you know, I'm, I'm very like sort of a free market person, mm-hmm. but I'm very anti-capitalist and that blows people's minds. Mm. Uh, and this is me interviewing you, but I think it's just for your, That's so fascinating. For, for your, and I think like you should be able to trade and sell your wares and kind of do whatever you want as long as it's not like poisoning other people or whatever. But the, Huh. Political and social power that accrues to wealth is like toxic to society, in my opinion, right? So, and I think of like a dam or I think of a building or I think of like a, a department complex. And what we do, we involve the community by saying, they say what the private developers can and can't do. And then some crew comes in from out, you probably out of town or somewhere else in the town, right? Builds to the like egregious limitations. They're generally like overburdensome limitations that the community set, right? Why not have the community do the building? Mm-hmm. Like then you solve two birds with one yes. stone, right? Because you, you probably get fewer limitations mm-hmm. if it were a true community involvement. Yep. And, and, you know, supply and demand, if you're, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm making hand gestures. If you're limiting what you can and can't do, you're going to have to build fewer beds and fewer beds mm-hmm. means lower supply. That means higher costs and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. But it also means that the people who are actually doing the building are, are not part of the community, right? Right. We've got to totally ask backwards. Yes, totally. Um, I don't know if you have a thought on that, but that's kind of how I, my approach I have so many. I have, I have so many thoughts. Um, one, I'm super curious to hear. I think it's really interesting for you to talk about being free market and anti-capitalist because I would almost say I'm probably, my instinct is that I'm probably the reverse. But when you describe what you're talking about, I think we're talking about the same thing. So tell me a little bit more about what you mean by being anti-capitalist. Well, I just mean that there's a, uh, again, I, I hesitate to you know monologue too much, but, but um, I, I think Marx would have defined capitalism in the way that I'm defining it, which is a social, political, and economic power that extends beyond the purchasing power of money. It's not just that I can buy, you know, one unit with 10 dinars, right? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of like um, labor and doing should be equal to that, but it doesn't. You know, an example that I would give is um, I went to graduate school and I took a loan to go to graduate school mm-hmm. and I pay interest on that loan. And I can't write that off on my taxes because that was an investment in my labor, mm-hmm. my mental labor. But it was, if I'd done the same thing with a home, which at that time for that amount of money, I would have been right. probably could have bought a modest home for how much I went to grad school for, right? Maybe, maybe not quite, but, but close enough, right? Well, that I can deduct on my taxes, right? That interest on that loan that I would take, that mm-hmm. is, that is a, that is like unabashed capitalism. It says this capital investment is worth more to society than this labor investment. I gotcha. Another one would be, um, think about the taxes. You know, if you're an attorney, attorneys do, they're scumbag attorneys, but for the most part, attorneys do good, honest work. A lot of them are in public interest, right? They make six figures. They pay a pretty high tax on that. But that same person invests money in the stock market and makes $100,000 in the stock market and pays a very low, right? So, I mean, across, and you see it with housing, right? Where, the people who own the house get this political power, right? That extends beyond their ability to, you know, I would say free market in the sense of like, you shouldn't limit trade, for example. I think trade should be open. So when I say free market, I mean that. But but then you shouldn't, having capital should not accrue you more power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And yet if you own a home in the city, you have so much power over the renters, right? It's not, there's no reason it should be one vote and there's plenty more renters and homeowners, but the homeowners sort of set the agenda politically. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I see that taking place, like not just in Seattle, not just in Washington, across the whole country. You know, I would see it as having breadth in terms of geography, but depth in terms of the number of ways in which ownership imbues power Mm -hmm. to the owner over the non-owner of a thing. Yeah. Well, and ownership itself is so fascinating. I mean, I think land ownership in particular Mm. on stolen land is just a fascinating concept. Right. 
Um, I think a lot about, you know, we, we talk about these racially restrictive covenants. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what and, zoning, is, what, for a hundred years, that's what zoning was, right? right. I mean, it was yeah. racial redlining, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, even, right, and that's kind of a lot of the question as I, as I ask myself is, is what, what's today's equivalent of the things that we would look back on a generation later and be like, that's ridiculous. I can't believe we thought that was a good idea, you know? And I mean, zoning is super tricky. And, and I mean, we can talk about that in a whole other conversation because I think it's really similar to what you were referring to before when it comes to like a community gets together and sets a couple parameters and then depersonalizes mm-hmm. the widget making from right the placemaking yeah tell me more what you're thinking yeah just to finish the 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 land ownership i mean just yeah the the, the concept of building capital on land that was stolen and and to to have land belong to us in a place where formerly folks belong to the land is Mm -hmm. just i mean it is is so challenging i think it's problematic even outside the context of colonization i mean even in you know ireland or whatever, mm-hmm. the idea that you would own land and pass that to your children who didn't, yeah. did, just by dint right. of like some kind of yeah. tradition, totally. but there's no, like, what is the... Totally. Yeah. It's interesting because, um, <clears throat> you know, I haven't really thought about it in terms of free market versus capitalism and um, haven't thought about it in terms of capital accrual, like in the way that you were talking about. So I think it's, it's it, I'm just going to have to stew on that. I think it's really interesting. The, um, we'll come back on once yeah, you have a chance. Right? <laughs> I mean, the way I've really thought about it is really the mechanism of trading things for money mm-hmm. um, versus the stories that we tell about what humanity is about. And it feels like the stories that we started telling or teaching ourselves in Econ 101, like those are super harmful. The idea that we're about maximizing our own interests mm. and that our own interests can be calculated in terms of a number based on dollars yeah. and cents. Yeah. Um, the Chicago, like the so-called yeah, Chicago school. maybe. Yeah. And I'm not versed enough in econ to like, to, to pinpoint it. I mean, I've, I've heard some of it coming from the Chicago school, but I, I feel like I hear it in any econ 101 class, right? Is just this concept of self-interest maximization mm-hmm. and that value can be put down to a number. It's, it's, a, it's a strange concept and I think it leads to this weird sense of not enoughness since ultimately that leads to no matter how much capital you can, you, you accumulate somehow like success in life can be measured by accumulating more of it. Like right. that's super painful. I mean, that's created so much pain, like not just in people who don't have capital and resources, which is in and of itself do. like unsustainable and therefore bad. Right. right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I feel like now we're getting like into almost an esoteric kind of conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I do feel like, you know, if you go to the Haida people or the, the Salish people more generally, you know, you, you see this kind of record of, you know, wealth accumulation by some. Now, what they did with it and the way they the way they socialized that wealth was very different. Mm. And um, they would throw these massive potlatches, right? And, mm. and you know, you go to the, um, you know, actually, it is almost without, almost without exception that there are rich and poor. Like, even in the, mm-hmm. even in really developing societies or, or mm-hmm. primitive even societies. Mm-hmm. But it's the, it's the, it almost seems fair to say that's human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But to then capture that and say, well, therefore it is the purpose of this particular branch of science to maximize that mm-hmm. feels like a warp, like a warped perspective, right? Rather. So mm-hmm. economics should be the study of incentives. It should be the study mm-hmm. of scarcity, mm-hmm. how to, how to optimize for scarcity. This idea 
I also think they have it backwards. They have causation and correlation reversed with respect to, I think it is in everyone's self-interest to achieve the greater good. It is not that the greater yeah. good is achieved when everyone follows right. their self-interest. Totally. Anyway, yeah. yeah. We, it, <laughs> but, and I think, you know, and it, it completely relates to the, to the built environment because I kind of looked into this stuff because I really got interested in, well, what if, if the narrative is, as a narrative sometimes is, that developers aren't just greedy, which is, I mean complicated in itself of itself right developers often work for investors and investors are greedy sometimes we're greedy why is that right like what what causes that need to get 20 percent returns instead of 10 percent returns on your investment which would be the difference between market rate and affordable or the difference between having this community space or not like what's the reason that drives that kind of investment thinking so i mean that's where it really does impact our um, our built form and in a lot of ways i don't know how we can untangle the built form without untangling what actually motivates us Mm -hmm. what intrinsically motivates us Mm -hmm. and like bringing the social back in right like Mm -hmm. i mean getting back to why can't the community be the developers i absolutely agree like there's really (laughs) development is really just about assembling money mm-hmm. and then managing a timeline and a budget, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so historically, it made sense that before we had these amazing communication tools we have, that the way that you do that for something that costs a crazy amount of money is you go to people who have a lot of money, which tended to be rich white guys, and then therefore, as a developer, you probably were somebody who knew rich white guys, right? Mm-hmm. Like, But we don't have to have that. That doesn't have to be the setup anymore. Right. Right, totally. Well, so and that leads to so what you're doing now. Yeah, you, you're. I, I admire this, and I try to follow this model as well, which is like you kind of have a day job and a and then another thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, you know, I, I'm interested in everything. Frankly, we can go wherever you want, but I'm really curious about the Bramble Project and what, like, what kind of caused you to go there. Sure. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So Bramble was um, something that. It came from something I've just observed for a long time, which is that the people who develop make a huge difference on what ends up being developed. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a national investment firm coming in or international investment firm coming in is going to build a fundamentally different product from a local developer. And I sat in on a couple of public meetings where local developers and out-of-town developers kind of were hashing it out. Um, and I watched local developers call out the out-of-town developers mm-hmm. on some assumptions they were making around their finances and just really clarifying, like, okay, are you telling me that you can't afford to do this thing that the community's asking for? Or are you telling me that you simply get higher returns not doing it? Right. And that's, like, a very fine distinction that comes from knowing the field and understanding how it works and understanding how the spreadsheet works, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so Bramble started from that, just sort of like that, like watching that got me really fascinated in, by intrinsic motivation. Um, and I was also just observing from um, the development side, just working in nonprofit, affordable housing development, just the sense. And also from the design review board angle, just the sense that um, if we only look at quote unquote good developer behavior from the standpoint of zoning policy spreadsheets, financial mm-hmm. incentives, mm-hmm. like we're missing a huge piece of of leverage, yeah. right? Like in the same way that it feels like we're stuck in 
maybe I don't know like what corporate culture was in the 80s when it was all about just like policy handbooks and bonuses you know like like if you're you're forgetting culture um, and social incentive then what kind of a world are we creating really ultimately and there's still so much of that but yeah yeah, I see what you're saying yeah so Bramble was kind of about that it was really like okay like I'm just fascinated by the gray area of trying to do better development work Mm -hmm. in the context of a competitive capital market, right? Where you're still competing for um, land. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's only so much. Of right. It. Yeah. Right. And the fact is that, that <clears throat> institutional investors tend to have cheaper access to capital, which means that it's easier for them to pay more for land and build a building. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so if you're trying to compete with that, how do you do it and still be able to afford to do anything? Right. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of traveling, just to can see you, what was can you tell me a little more about that? I think that's something yeah. we don't talk about enough on this show. Sure. Density, urbanization. I'm very pro both of those things. Uh-huh. We don't. We we do speak. We speak about zoning and mm-hmm. off zoning. But you just touched on something that that I think as a dilettante, yeah. uh, I know a little about, but I don't think we talk about, which is these large institutional investors get cheaper money. Right. Can Can you talk about that a little bit, just for for more for the listeners? Yeah, um, basically just local developers tend to be, um, they tend to look at, they're getting kind of more boutique investors as opposed to national investment firms who are managing like maybe pension funds. Um, and therefore will have billions and billions of dollars. That right, already tons do. of money, um, supposedly lower risk. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't fully know the details of it beyond that. I just know, okay. kind of like know that's sort of how the numbers fall. Like, you know, it's access to money that's perfectly fine with like five or six percent returns as opposed to like looking for 15, 20 percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a pretty significant difference. Um, you also, there's kind of a, an economy of scale thing that happens as well. Like when you can just build a bigger building. Right. Um, but yeah, it's for the most part, it's, my understanding is just that the boutique, more local investors that local developers are working with expect a different kind of return. Just different, more money. Yeah. They want more money for their yeah. money. Yeah. Right. Which isn't always the case. Um, there's a developer in Portland called Deve- Gorilla Development Company that's doing really interesting things with um, investors who are interested in capping their returns a little bit mm-hmm. in exchange for significant amounts of affordability. And I can talk about that in more detail if that's interesting, but basically they've got some performance, some budgets, development budgets going where they're seeing in year 10 of a project being able to subsidize almost half of their market rate units from like $1,400 a month, which would be the market rate to $560 a month in rent. Yeah. It's significant. That's a major... Yeah. That would change, like, a whole neighborhood if you did that over the course yeah. of the neighborhood. Yeah. 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 Wow. And it's really just... It's simply... I don't... Maybe I shouldn't get too technical, but it's simply awareness that over time, you tend to get more cash flow out of a project mm-hmm. because your rents are probably increasing even at inflation rates, but your mortgage payments staying the same. Staying the same. So what's left over is going up. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how it's such a complicated, um, multifaceted 
problem that we have around housing yeah. in the city and in the region and in, in the countrywide really yeah. everyone's got the same problem yeah and you do have zoning issues and you do have uh, capital and funding issues mm-hmm. and yeah yeah you know so your the bramble website did a, a particular post that i just found really interesting it was back in september it was like how should i vote yeah and and you got into this um there was like a diagram and I'll, I'll post it up there, but they're, they're on, on when we post for the show, but you know, like leadership philosophy and like the importance of how leadership philosophy actually turns out to be the most important thing in the success of a particular, you know, administrator or legislator or whatever. Yeah. And that's just entirely like a diagram. Like that, that wasn't like a scientific. Oh, that was graph. just sort of your mind yeah. map. Oh, it looks yeah, yeah. so good though. It looked like somebody really put some time and thought into it. Well, so, in, in, and I will say that's another thing that, you know, if you, you listen to the show, I, I go, I'm very big on like um, technocracy generally, mm-hmm. like good leadership is more important than ideology, even mm-hmm. if I... I have an ideology. You probably have an ideology, and um, just talk. Maybe you talk a little more about what kind of where that came from. And, and oh my gosh! Yeah. Wow. Okay, that, that feels like it might be a tangent, but I do think it ends up dovetailing yeah, in. I, well, you might be beating me to what I was saying. <laughs> so that started. I thought I was doing a completely different thing um, right after Trump's election, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it was actually going back to family stuff. It was actually just seeing, seeing all like all the posts that were happening right after the election on social media, on Facebook in particular. And some of them were about like, man, how do we understand better what happened so that we can do better next time? Yeah. And that sense of like, we can't be this divided as a country. Um, like kind of having the national shame be broken out in the open a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, and kind of how crappy that feel that felt. Um, I just remembered feeling like I know what this feels like. Like I know what it feels like to have an abusive family relationship be like broken out in the open, and how you want to change everything and you have exactly one week to make the changes that you want before everything goes right back to where mm-hmm. it was. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, just like you, you, it, the, the depth of emotion only lasts for so long. And so again, that one week I decided I was going to try to come up with some kind of emotional time capsule to what that election felt like. Uh, and that ended up being a year long art project, which turned into a facilitation, um, which failed as a facilitation. Actually, Why so? Why do you say that? Um, well, so 24 people, so 12 Hillary voters and 12 Trump voters, they signed up from around the country hoping to find this connection and understanding of how the other side thinks, and we didn't get there. Mm. Um, and I had other facilitators helping me out, but I would say that, and, and I would do it all differently now. I mean, we weren't taking enough advantage of the potential for our technology to actually have, like, FaceTime and you know, like facial expression. So it was like too reliant on written word. Mm. We were too afraid of it becoming like another social media yell fest. So it was hard for folks to communicate. People, essentially people ended up growing silent. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, that's too bad. It was too bad from like a facilitation standpoint, yeah. but it was also super informative in terms of where we actually are as a country, right? right. Like it was like, we, there's... Everything's written. Everything was written. The gap was so big already, you know, between the ideologies that people just didn't know where to start. Mm -hmm. Folks would write a paragraph and then delete it 
and just be like, I don't know what to, what to say. Like, I don't even know where to begin. Right. And then, um, so yeah, it was too overwhelming. Folks had other things going on and it was just like, it just said so much about where we are as a society. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, observing that, observing like 24 people who were really trying and wanted, you know, started out wanting to reach across the divide, just kind of being like, I don't know how to make this work mm-hmm. in the medium that we have, um, in the time that I have to do this, um, maybe just question the whole mm-hmm. premise yeah. of how we vote, you know? And I think it was really clear as we had these political conversations that, um, to actually get to a thorough detailed analysis of what's happening politically, like on some kind of policy that, that would be like more than a full-time job that people don't have right. time for. Right. And so we end up with like sort of limited, viewpoints, limited sound bites, because it's all we have time to understand. Right. And so it's like, well, that, that can't be how a functioning democracy works, right? So that's, that's kind of where that, that, that particular post Well, you talked about is. initial experience, compel- compelling yeah. beliefs, and then leadership style. Right. And the thing that I appreciated about it, and, and push back if I'm actually interpreting this wrong, sure. right, is that your ideologies and your beliefs are really good flashpoints. I mean, obviously... Yeah. And rightfully so, right? Yeah. Like you're, I'm, I tend to vote Democrat because uh, that's how I see the world. And right. there's a cluster of policies that I don't agree with Democrats on everything, but much more than certainly mm-hmm. the Republicans. And if anything, I would go more green than Democrat. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They're, they're flashpoints to grasp at meaning. But your argument was that by the time you hit, you know, year three of a presidency yeah. or a governorship or a, a mayorship right. or whatever, it's really not about the ideologies because no. it, it, so many forces are pulling those people in so many ways. It's actually much more about like, what is this person's approach to leadership? Exactly. Are they listening to the opposition? Right. Are they listening to their base? Are they yeah. willing to admit that they're wrong? Are they delegating power in the right way? Yeah. Right. I mean, is that, is yeah, that a fair exactly. encapsulation? Yeah. yeah. And it's crazy because we, we, pick leaders for most organizations that way, right? We don't say, okay, um, we are screwed as an organization. How are you going to fix all, your, all our problems? And how can we make sure that you don't deviate for, from your plan for the next four years, right? Yeah. That is not how we pick an executive director, <laughs> right, right. CEO. Right. Um, so it... I don't know why we, <laughs> we elect our political leaders that way, except for the fact that that's for some reason the way that we... Um, structure our debates. Those are the mm. questions that we ask for some reason. Um, and somehow we expect it of ourselves. We expect ourselves to have answers to these insanely complex questions instead yeah. of just allowing them to be complex and allowing mm. um, things to unfold. There's something human about it, right? Yeah. There's something human about, again, to my word, it's just my word, but there's yeah. like a flashpoint, like right. abortion. Right. Oh, killing babies or, or what's the opposite, I guess, like hates women or like whatever. Right. Like it's easy. Yeah. And we don't always hold our, not that, I mean, I'm extremely pro-choice and I have a bit of distaste for anti-abortion activists. So I'm, I'm, even the example I'm using, I'm certainly not better than it. Right. It's easier. We don't allow ourselves to go into the. Uh, the mud of like, well, <laughs> yeah, and it's so freaking harmful, right? Like, it's so harmful to, to, to speak as if the solution is simple, um, and and I think the other reality, and I think this is what I loved about the Between Americans project that I did was was realizing that on the ground, most people don't think the answer is that simple, um, but what makes it online in the short sound bites is a real 
skewing mm-hmm. of our national dialogue because yeah. the only thing that makes it <laughs> right. into the written word, mm-hmm. you know, and doesn't get written and deleted and edited out and it's the bumper sticker. subsumed is the bumper sticker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I mean, it's, it's, it's such a disservice. And I mean, even the zoning, um, debates that we have locally, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. Right. Because it is, I, I will say this and it, it actually is zoning triggered this thought for me, but actually you could talk about it with national issues, gun control, uh, choice, like, uh, you know, tax rate, like, I do sometimes feel like the argument, not always, but the argument tends to be between people who say this is complicated and people who say this is simple. It's Mm -hmm. not often in my personal, totally Mm non-scientific experience. The argument is usually not two extremes yelling about how simple it is. Except online. Maybe online, yeah, but but even like, let let me talk about zoning, where like if you're in a city council meeting... You generally have one set of people who are going like, look, um, lifting single-family zoning doesn't mean you have to do anything to your house. We just want the right to do mm-hmm. this on this lot, right? And it would mm-hmm. here's the facts, and like we would still keep fire code, and we still wouldn't build more than eight floors. And right. and then you've got folks on the other side who are saying like, no, you want to ruin our neighborhood. Yeah. Right? And I feel, so I, I do feel like most issues generally we know a lot. We're smart. Our society has computers and we have, you know, I don't know, about a thousand years of, of stored knowledge, you know, more than that if you go east, right? And we we access that and generally the debate is like, I find it's the nuance versus the flattening side. It might seem that way just because I do think that often um, the side that we're not speaking from feels flat. Yeah. Okay. Fair maybe. enough. Yeah. Um, like, cause like we, we're more experienced with the nuance, right. From like the position that we're coming from. Right. Cause like, I, I've also heard on the other side is because you, you were describing like the nuance of upzoning versus the mm-hmm. flattening of keeping things the same. I've right. also certainly heard the nuance of keeping these things the same versus this, the flatness of like, tell, tell me what it is. Upzone <laughs> and everything. Well, right. Like, yeah. I mean, like the, the supply and demand argument that if we it just, does, if right, we yeah. only had enough supply that we would have market, affordable housing everywhere. In this, yeah. Yeah, right, 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 right. Right. Like in like that flatness is also fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Market urbanism generally. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, that's one of the things that I've been trying to, and I'm certainly speaking as myself and not, um, in, in my professional capacity, but one thing that I've been trying to do at work is, um, and I, and I'm uh, the real estate strategist of the city of Seattle right now in the planning department is that, um, it's kind of shifting some of that language, at least when it talks, when we talk about, um, affordability and density, mm-hmm. To be like, we're not ultimately freaking out about the numbers. What we're freaking out about is belonging, right? Like, am I going to walk out onto the sidewalk and feel like I'm in a crowd of people who would care if I'm here or not? Mm-hmm. Um, and Which I, is maybe why folks fight upset. Right. right. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And we don't use that language, you know? And and I think I, it, it's, it's, I mean, it, it feels very complicated to me because... Um, you know, I see some, when I see new stuff being built in a neighborhood that I care about, like, mm-hmm. and that I identify with, like the international districts, like I'm frightened, right? Like I, it's terrifying to me to like, and and I can intellectually be like, oh, look, more units, right? And I can also be like, am I going to walk on the sidewalk and feel like 
the new folks coming in are going to care about the same shops that I do right. or going to go to the same restaurants that I do? Or will they just be happy that this little shop I used to go to will go away because to them it wasn't anything in the first place? Right. Yeah. No, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. And then I would close with this question, you know, um, I think I, I'm a New Yorker by birth. I've lived here for years now, but but native New Yorker. And I think back um, to a kind of certainly ethnically and, and sort of sociog- sociographically, probably just a real crappy time. But from a city planning point of view, I think of the Brooklyn of like my mother's youth, mm. right? Where it was even then three or four times denser than Seattle today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But somehow people were looking out for their neighbors, right? This is every mob movie you ever saw. It's not made up. I mean, it's yeah. the real thing, right? What is it? How do you get from A to Z there? How do you get from this like big city to yet we're still all looking out for our neighbors? I know. I think it's, uh, it's such a beautiful question. I think it's the challenge that we're <clears throat> experiencing is it's so much easier to be looking out for your neighbors when there's that sense of mutual need. Right. Like when, um, and this is kind of why I realized, why I recently realized I'm in this profession that I'm in is I grew up, right? Like, I know first five years of my life were in China and then we grew up as immigrants and we were pretty broke until like middle school, high school. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I've experienced the community of mutual reliance. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that any like folks who've grown up middle class have experienced that same feeling because, the American dream supposedly really is about self-reliance, right? It's oh, about yeah. getting everything you need. And there's a, a profound potential loneliness to that of I have my own lawnmower. My neighbor has their lawnmower, right? Like I've got like we don't need each other for anything. Yeah. Um, a, a friend of mine is a principal at a prominent law firm and he sort of acknowledged like, yeah, like, yeah. He was like, yeah, I broke my leg and I was laid up for a month and it definitely felt like I fell off the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just so... Uh, <laughs> profoundly busy. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I feel like the answer to that question involves somehow finding, finding that enoughness that we talked about earlier, right? Finding that ability to slow down and, and not be so profoundly too busy for each other. Mm. I don't know how, I, I haven't seen a great example of an urban middle class neighborhood that's got that figured out. Yeah. I think it's a thing of the past. Maybe. But it, it, was, it was there. And again, I'm not a traditionalist, but there's something that's changed. And I think maybe, you know, I bet, I bet someone doing a dissertation would say, well, we all, when we all moved out to the suburbs and in the, the, the Levittown period mm-hmm. and the white flight period, we, we lost something as a country. Right. And we we're having a hard time putting it back together. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we probably lost... It's, we've been losing it, right? And it's, we've been losing it because, but this is where I believe, believe that the, the stories have so much power is that we lost it because we didn't think it was important in a way, right? We totally. thought that what we wanted was self-reliance. Mm-hmm. So as that story is shifting, I do think that all the stats about loneliness is the next American epidemic and how much the sense of alienation, isolation is affecting our health. Um, that actually feels um, somewhat hopeful to me in the sense in the that, sense that people will maybe begin to yeah, take action if if only right, right. examining right right, yeah. right change our relationship to capital change mm-hmm. our relationship to ownership and mm-hmm. yeah change our relationship to each other too yeah exactly yeah mm-hmm. hey thanks for coming on thank you was that woo, that was we, fast well that was it wasn't we we, <laughs> we jogged for a while you're fun to talk to we do end every show mm-hmm. with a segment we call if you care about you should 
Yeah. Fill in the blanks. If you care about belonging, hmm. you should make more eye contact with the people you pass <laughs> on the sidewalk. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> But don't tell people to smile. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a little hard. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for Come having back me. Anytime. This is lovely. Yeah. Bozang. Check out the brambleproject.com or betweenamericans.org for more on what Bo is up to. As always, music by the Subcons, dope opening poetry sample by Anthony McPherson. Sound by Naboo. Our sponsor is Happy High Achiever. Check them out. Like I said last week, I'm not just repping them, I'm using them. I'm your host, Ian Martinez. This has been a Cascadia Underground production, and we will see you next week. My favorite.